Listen to how John describes Jesus in 1.9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Yet the world that Jesus entered was hostile to him. Go to chapter 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. When the light shines on spiritual darkness, on people sequestered in their sin, it's a painful experience. So they flee deeper into the dark uh, to hide in the place of perceived safety. But Jesus is greater than the darkness of sin. John 1.5 reads, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We all know people living in their spiritual darkness, not the nebulous people we don't know on the internet or the TV that are just part of the culture, but people we know content in their sinful depravity, friends or family members who live their lives far from God. And we may think of these people as too far gone, too far lost in the darkness for God's grace to reach them. I studied the theology of Andrew Fuller a bit in seminary because he was a late 1700s English Baptist. Charles Spurgeon said of him, he was the greatest theologian of the century. Fuller may be most famous for his contributions in England uh, to the modern missionary movement. He was instrumental in the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792, which sent out his friend, William Carey, who was called the father of modern missions, to India. Andrew Fuller served as the secretary of that society, and he supported Carey and others through prayer and fundraising. But personally, Fuller knew heartbreak. He lost a wife and eight children, most of them in infancy. But the trial more severe than the rest, Fuller said, was with a son that survived to adulthood. Robert rarely applied himself. He was unstable in his work habits, and employers found him untrustworthy. He had a rowdy streak in him with a craving for travel and adventure. So this led him to enlist in the Royal Navy as a sailor, which piqued his father's fears for his son because of his unstable nature and because of the Navy's rampant immorality. Andrew's fears were justified. Robert became involved in sinful activities, was convicted of a misdemeanor and severely beaten as punishment, deserted his service, and then punished for that so severely he could not continue the tour he was on. He did eventually re-enlist. I don't know why they took him back. But his father didn't hear from him for about four years. But then he received a letter from his son that he was heading to Lisbon with the fleet, but he feared for his life. Robert did indeed die aboard that ship off the coast of Lisbon in 1809. His father Andrew preached his son's funeral, and he himself died in 1815 never receiving closure concerning his son. Robert had slid too far into the darkness of sin. He was a bad seed 
a lost cause. Now, that same thing should uh, surely be said of the woman that Jesus met at the well. She had strayed too far from God's designs, broken too many of God's commands. She jumped headlong into darkness that God's grace could no longer reach her. Her track record of five marriages prove it. And on the morning she talked with Jesus, she woke up next to a man that was not her husband. But the weary man who walked up and asked her for a drink of water was no ordinary man. And the next part of this conversation shows that God and His grace cannot be put into a nice and neat box that we can expect. Now I love how John records this conversation. It's so organic and real. Conversations can meander between topics, like this one here. It's a blistering day, so the traveler, weary uh, from his journey, and a woman meet at the well. And he says, hey, could you do me a favor? Could I have some water? Now, Jesus is a good teacher, so the objects around him become his illustrations. The water leads him to explain eternal life as living water. Then the conversation meanders to relationships, a theological controversy about worship, and then to the coming Messiah. Out of all the subjects, which one sticks out like a sore thumb that doesn't seem to belong? Go, call your husband and come here. What is going on here? Now, you can tell that the woman wants to shut that part of the conversation down as fast as she can by comparing the length of her response in verse 17 to all the other responses in the passage. All she says was, I have no husband. Now, this is clearly a sensitive area, maybe even an area of pain, um, as Jesus mentions it, because how she twists the truth and leaves out a lot of details. So Jesus provides the details. You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. What is he doing to this stranger? Jesus is being the light of the world. And being the light involves exposing sin and darkness. Jesus is revealing simply what is already there. What the woman was hiding just under the surface. Pastor Troy's sermon last week was all about living water, the previous stop in the conversation. He shared with us that Jesus offers living water to the thirsty soul. Only living water can satisfy our souls. And living water from Jesus wells up to eternal life. Yet Jesus swerves the conversation to her relationships. Why? Jesus exposes what is standing in the way of her being satisfied with living water. John Piper said that Jesus brought up her relationships to reveal to her that she's thirsty because she doesn't even know that she's thirsty. Her track record of relationships shows that she's doing a lot of searching, but not a whole lot of finding satisfaction. Now, it isn't clear if there was immorality here 
in her past relationships. But the sheer number of previous marriages and the revelation that she's currently with a man not her husband, plus the woman going to the well in the heat of the day, all together paint a picture of a sinful woman. Now, Jesus was at this well, according to verse 6, in the sixth hour, or noon o'clock. And that's when the woman approaches with her empty jar. Women would generally fetch water from the well in groups, either early or late in the day to avoid the heat. Yet this woman comes alone because she may be something of an outcast due to her lifestyle. But notice that this exposure of her personal darkness does not shut her down or turn her away from Jesus. She keeps talking. Many consider her response in verses 19 and 20 a diversion away from her sin in order to distract Jesus. But D.A. Carson thinks differently. This stranger knowing something about her that he shouldn't know, he, uh, she calls him a prophet in verse 19, prompts her to ask him a point of contention between her people and his people. Worship. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now you could say that there was bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. So Taylor Swift's song, Bad Blood, has been stuck in my head all week. Now, that is outside of my normal playlist, since I'm not a high school girl from about 10 years ago, but that's a very catchy song. So she respects Jesus, so she asks him where the proper place to worship is. Location is important to the Samaritans and to the Jews of Jesus' day because they were descendants of a divided kingdom, Samaria in the north and Judah in the south. Which kingdom was correct? Mount Gerizim towered over the well and was the Samaritans' holy site. Jacob's well was there, but Jacob and Abram, Abraham also built altars in the general vicinity, and Moses blessed the people from there. So Samaritans built their temple there, which Jews later destroyed. Bad blood, see? Now the Samaritans, though, only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, the Pentateuch, as Scripture. So the Jews determined Jerusalem as the holy site because they looked at the whole of God's revelation. At Jerusalem, David determined to build a temple to God. Solomon was authorized by God to build it there, and it was there that the temple sacrifice was divinely sanctioned. The temple was later rebuilt by Zerubbabel and renovated by Herod. So where is the proper place to worship, Mr. Prophet? But rather than where, Jesus focuses on whom and how. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not where that matters. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now the whom? The Jews are right, not you Samaritans, because they accepted the full revelation from God. Um, so they know whom they worship, not you. 
But Jesus says all of this to tell her his main point. How? Verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says that a new age is coming and is now upon us when Jerusalem and Samaria don't matter because God is spirit and not contained in any location on a map. So he's seeking worshipers to worship in spirit and truth. So your first point, A1. Invitation extended. Worship the Father in spirit and truth. The invitation extended. Jesus invites her to leave her theological debate behind for true worship when he says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. She's not at a disadvantage from being from the Samaritans, the people who have done worship wrongly for centuries, because God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The only requirement is in spirit and in truth together as a unit. So let's examine this deeper with two applications about worship to follow. To worship in spirit is to have worship, honor, and praise to God that springs from the depth of our souls. Our inner spirit defines our true being. So Jesus commands our worship to come from there. We can read the Bible, Old and New Testament, to find examples of what worship is not. Although Jesus sides with the Jews, in verse 22, their worship was often dead external formalism. R.C. Sproul described it. Like in Matthew 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah to describe first century Jews. So it was true of Jews in Jesus' day, and it was true of Jews 750 years previous. It reads, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We worship in vain like the Jews when our lips are engaged without our hearts. Worship in the Spirit requires heart involvement. Yet how easily we complete our daily lives without our hearts engaged. And how easily we can come here and move our lips to the music without it penetrating our hearts and without it springing from our hearts. Now to worship in the truth is to worship, honor, and praise God according to what He wants as directed to us from His Word. Yet we live in a culture of me, myself, and I. And how easily we can fit right in and so many churches make decisions according to relevance and are filled with people seeking the warm and the fuzzies. Now we can read the Bible, Old and New Testament again, to find examples of what truth worship is not. Maybe the best example is that of the golden calf. R.C. Sproul says, That was a worship service completely designed 
to minister to the felt needs of the people. But it was not an exercise in true worship, but of idolatry. Worship in spirit and in truth must be packaged together. The Israelites worshipped with their spirits when they worshipped their golden calf, but not according to the truth. And the Jews of Jesus's and Isaiah's day worshipped in truth, but only from their lips and not from their spirits. Neither extreme is true worship. So which way do you lean? Toward truth and away from spirit? Or toward spirit and away from truth? Now God seeks worshipers who must worship in spirit from their hearts and in truth according to God's word. Jesus invites an immoral Samaritan woman to this genuine worship and invites us as well. According to Alistair Begg, genuine worship is a key evidence of God's grace in your life. So do you worship God truly from the heart and according to his ways? Or do you have a cold, disengaged heart with a lifestyle more focused on yourself? So let's apply this truth to our experience One bound to location and one not bound to location. So application number one. Seek to bless others during our worship gathering. This one is bound to this time on Sundays in this place and involves who you come in the doors for. If you come to worship gathering, thinking about the length of the prayers, the volume of the music, the sound of the mics, how the sermon made you feel, if it was too hot or if it was too cold, you will derive little from our time together and you will make a meager contribution to it, according to Alistair Begg. A Puritan clergyman writes, When we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified in our worship, then we put God below ourselves as if he had been made for us rather than I had been made for him. Now rather, come in those doors in the spirit of Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for every, everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Don't live for yourself, but live by the Spirit. What are the key words in those verses? One another. Address one another in psalms, hymns, and songs, and submit to one another. That's how you live by the Spirit. So what does that look like in our worship gathering? You sing, considering the words as you sing, in order to bless others around you, so that when they hear you singing the truth of the words that you're singing, they're encouraged in their spirit to sing praises to God as well. And you never say, well, I couldn't worship today because Chris didn't pick songs that I like. That's when you submit to other people in the church 
who were ministered to by the songs that you don't like, praising God for that ministry to them, and you never say those words ever to anyone ever. (laughs) Application two. Offer your life as a sacrifice of worship to God. So this goes right along with the attitude of the first application without the specific location. Romans 12.1 reads, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our entire life should be devoted uh, to God. Replacing the Old Testament sacrifices of external animals and offerings was the offering of the entire being of Jesus the Son. Through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood for sin's punishment. So now, to follow Jesus, we offer all of ourselves just as he offered all of himself on the cross, living devoted to God. We are worshiping beings. And that's how we were created. So every moment of every day, we are assigning value to a countless number of things. And we make decisions based upon those value statements. From the words that we use to the tone that we use those words in to how we spend our time, our money, and our attention. So draw a line from those values back to the center, and that's our God. Are we honoring God with how and with what we ascribe value? Are we most devoted to God, or are we most devoted to ourselves? Offer your whole life in worship to God, of which the Sunday gathering is an essential piece, but participating in the Sunday gathering alone does not equal a life offered in sacrificial worship to God. Jesus says in verse 23 that the hour is coming and is now here for this new age of worship because of what he says in the next part of the conversation. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. John adds, he was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The spirit and truth age of worship has dawned in Jesus. So point B, identity revealed. Jesus is the Messiah. Now this is the only time before Jesus' trial that he acknowledges that he is the Messiah. And the big reveal that he's the long-promised one now here is given not to a Jew, not to a disciple, but to a Samaritan of ill repute. Now, since Jesus previously said that God is spirit, he is invisible and therefore completely unknowable to us unless he desires to reveal himself. But reveal himself he did through the word, his own self-expression who took on flesh. 
Jesus is the Word made flesh. And according to Hebrews 1.3, the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. And in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Colossians 1.19. So as the Messiah, Jesus is both God and man together. Now these verses that I just read emphasize his godness, but consider in his humanity how flexible and how personable Jesus is. In John chapter 1, Jesus ministers to a small group of people from Galilee who are a lot like himself. In chapter 2, he ministers at a large social gathering, a wedding. In chapter 3, Nicodemus comes at night and Jesus talks theology with the well-educated rabbi. And here in chapter 4, Jesus comfortably talks with someone from a different race, religion, and lifestyle. And he invites her to join the worship movement. So our passage ends with the disciples returning and with lunch as they restrain their shock, as they see their Jewish rabbi talk with a Samaritan and a woman in public. But focus on the woman's response to talking with Jesus. Your third point. Invitation accepted. From an outcast to outreach. Invitation accepted. Notice how the Samaritan woman's understanding of Jesus changed throughout their conversation. In verse 11 and 15, the woman calls him, Sir. In verse 19, she progresses to Jesus being a prophet. And then, he, uh, and then refers to him as the Christ in verse 29. And then in verse 42, because of her testimony, villagers call Jesus the Savior of the world. From Sir to Prophet to Christ to Savior of the world. And it all began with one woman walking up and calling him Sir. Jesus has changed her. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. So contrast the woman at the beginning and the end. The woman was an outcast, coming in the heat of the day by herself to collect water for herself and for a man who's not her husband. But then she runs back to town, so excited to share with the people who she had reason to avoid, that she forgets her water jar, the very reason she journeyed to the well. What happens in between? She talks with the Messiah. So I labeled my outline in this uh, weird way to try to highlight the connection. The invitation is extended to the immoral Samaritan woman to come be part of worshiping God the Father. That is point A1. Then you see her accept that invitation as she leaves the well. The shady lady becomes a witness. Thank you for that wording, Pastor Troy. That is point A2. So what brings A1 and A2 together from invitation to acceptance? B, 
Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has the authority to invite the Samaritan woman and anyone to worship his father because he's the Messiah. And Jesus has the ability to change people so that invitation will be accepted because he is the Messiah. And that right there, invitation, acceptance with the Messiah in the middle is an appetizing sandwich. So how does that apply to you? If you're not a Christian, Jesus is calling. And his arms are open wide. Accept the invitation. Put your trust in Jesus. He's the man who told the Samaritan woman everything she ever did. According to the great theologian Ashley Trowell and his grandfather Les, in commenting on this passage, the Samaritan woman could say on that day, I talked to God and he isn't mad at me. Come out of the darkness. Leave your sin behind. Come into the light. A satisfied life, living water, healing a parched soul awaits. True worship awaits. Worship of the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus is inviting you to worship the Father through me. That's what he's calling. Come and join the light. So application one Accept Jesus' invitation to worship the Father. And what if you're a Christian already? Application two, keep praying and inviting people to worship the Father. The Samaritan woman's life shows us that no one is too far gone to be saved by God's grace never beyond the reach of God's grace, and never lost without hope of being found by God's grace. No one, not the Samaritan woman, nor any of your loved ones, and not Robert Fuller. Robert Fuller died on that ship off the coast of Lisbon in 1809. His father Andrew died in 1815 without closure. Thirty years later, In 1845, another son and Robert's younger brother, Andrew Gunton Fuller, met a man named Mr. Waldy, a deacon of a Baptist church in Scotland. They got to talking, and Mr. Waldy shared that years ago, he knew his brother Robert while they were shipmates together. They were good friends, with Mr. Waldy testifying about Robert, quote, He was a very pleasing, nice youth, and he became a true Christian man. For years, Robert received letters from his father, including a letter Robert received a few months before he died, in which his father pleaded for him to turn from his sin and turn toward Jesus. Robert died. Then later, his father, without ever knowing what happened, But when his father opened his eyes in heaven, he saw his son. God is kind. Jesus is the Messiah. That's your motivation to keep praying and keep inviting. So the invitation stands. Come, worship the Father in spirit and truth. Let's pray.
Father, um, there are many among us who have kids, grandkids, even great-grandkids, neighbors, or we have friends who do not know Jesus. These people have rejected the invitations thus far. Save them, God, please. Draw them out of their darkness. God, you are kind, and we know that Jesus has the authority to invite and the ability to transform. Please do that for all the people who are on our minds and in our hearts. You know them by name, and you are calling them by name to come into your family. May they come, God. And if there's anyone here, Father, still hiding in the darkness, draw them out. Bring them to yourself, I pray. Encourage us to keep praying and to keep inviting. May we be found faithful stewards to the access to your throne of grace that we have been given. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.